Welcome, listeners. I have a musical question for you. Have you ever heard or sung an old folk hymn called Standing on the Promises? It's by Russell Carter, and it's old, as in 1886 old. Do you know it? What do you think it means? On what promises are you supposed to stand? of God, my Savior, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God, oh yes, I'm standing on the promises of God, oh, I'm standing on the promises of God. This episode is about standing, and it's about promises. I want to welcome back Jonathan Stoffer, who brings us theological and ecological grounding for our consideration of current events. Jonathan offers us some food for thought briefly before he interviews Bill Shearer of On Earth Peace, who traveled to Standing Rock in December. We have heard from others who spoke about the events at Standing Rock. Now you hear for someone who was there and experience the highs and lows of people dedicated to standing, and those we call water protectors. Listen carefully to the scripture Jonathan reads also. One thing that the Gospels tell us is that Jesus often took time to pray and reflect with God in a natural setting. Likewise, we read that Jesus often attended to people's physical needs before addressing their spiritual needs. He fed people with good food, 
He used natural concepts in his teachings, most notably in parables. With Jesus being both divine and human, we consider the holiness of the Spirit intertwined with the body. Jesus reminds us that humans are not only free-floating spirits or inert bodies. Rather, humans are physical bodies inhabited with a soul. As our souls are dependent on the life-giving Spirit of God, so are our bodies dependent on natural processes for living. Recognizing this truth counteracts the forces which treat the earth and its inhabitants as lifeless commodities. Such concerns connect with those of the environmental justice movement today. In a nutshell, the environmental justice movement seeks to restore and protect the ecological conditions of a place so that the health of people who reside in these places are also restored. As radical disciples of Jesus, the topic of environmental justice is one way that Christians understand the melding of body and spirit. To paraphrase eco-theologian Willis Jenkins, environmental justice in the Christian context is motivated by the understanding that creation's goodness and human dignity are intimately connected. By extending the incarnate word of Jesus Christ into a cosmological context, Christians may participate in environmental justice efforts toward a wholeness for the earth community. One of the most vivid examples in the Bible relating to the concerns of environmental justice comes from Ezekiel chapter 34. Beginning in verse 17, As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another, and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them, See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So in this passage we see a close relationship with God's justice between ecological restoration and physical well-being. Also note the parallel to the words of Jesus in telling the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. When Christians participate in environmental justice, they advocate for the well-being of marginalized communities that typically bear the brunt of ecological degradation. This degradation often results from the harmful waste left by many industrial processes. Also, it should come as no surprise that these marginalized communities often fall along the lines of racial and class discrimination. Dr. Robert Bullard has written the most on the goals and history of the environmental justice movement. Beginning around the 1980s, communities have fought for the right that all individuals have a right to be protected from environmental degradation. Goals include the formation of policies and procedures which protect public health from the abuse of those who would pollute their neighborhoods. You can find bibliographic information about Dr. Bullard's book and other resources on environmental justice at the Dunker Punks podcast website. Public indignation and action surrounding the crisis in Flint, Michigan over lead contamination in its tap water is one of the recent examples of environmental injustice. 
The concerns since Flint have broadened into other cities across the country and motivated a movement that promotes access to clean water for all. Another example of environmental justice comes from the water protector demonstrations within the Standing Rock Sioux Nation located in North Dakota. Essentially, the demonstrators are resisting the development of an oil pipeline that was planned to travel through part of tribal reservations. This route was planned after North Dakota residents objected to building the pipeline closer to the state capital, Bismarck. The route now slated for construction would travel near a sacred area for the tribe and cross the Missouri River, a major watershed in the northern Great Plains region and tributary to the Mississippi River. The tribes were most concerned about the pollution that would occur once the pipeline leaked into the river. Their concern was not only for their own people and land, but also for the people who lived downstream that would be affected. It is for this reason that the demonstrators camped at Standing Rock call themselves water protectors. Bill Schur, executive director of Unearth Peace, participated at the Standing Rock events with the water protectors. In a December 12th post on his blog, The Faithful Steward, Bill explains his ultimate rationale for joining this and other social justice efforts. Quote, the reason I follow the water protectors at Standing Rock is easy. It is the same reason I follow the wonderful young people in Black Lives Matter. Each day I look in, around and ask, where do I see Jesus today? Where do we follow him? I see the face and heart and body of Jesus in these indigenous water protectors at Standing Rock, in these young people of color in Black Lives Matter, together leading our whole society toward the better world of the beloved community. And so I follow and bring others. End quote. I had the pleasure of interviewing Bill by phone about his experience at Standing Rock. We now turn to that insightful conversation for the remainder of this episode. Hello, Bill. Glad to speak with you on this Dunker Punks podcast today. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I love the Dunker Punks, and as you may recall, we've been around since the beginning. That's great. Well, let's jump right in then with this, the first question I have for you. Can you describe your calling to participate at Standing Rock? What concerns you about the situation? Where did you find the courage to go be with the protesters? And why was it so important to be there in person instead of merely reading and tweeting the news? I think I felt the call to go for quite a while and, in fact, had been scheduled to go three times before, uh, sure. once on the river action and then um, two of the other faith leaders' gatherings, one of which was only a few weeks before I actually went. So th this particular time, um, the reason I felt compelled to go this particular time is because, one, I felt I was supposed to be going all along, but the only thing that kept me were other work commitments. But this particular time was a confluence of several events. It was another faith leaders gathering that was invited by the elders of the camp. And there was the veterans gathering. And I have a whole lot of connections with veterans as an original member of military families speak out and um, you know, having veterans among my own kids. And it was also the hard date for the eviction because the, uh, the hard eviction date was supposed to take place on December 5th. So it was felt a little bit like a now or never you go there and they're calling for anybody and everybody who can come to come. And right. the other reasons why I felt called to go was because I knew so many other people in our community were watching and following and feeling the desire to go too. 
And so I honestly felt like I was not going alone, that I was carrying with me all kinds of people in OEP who wanted to be there. I was carrying with me my uh, military veteran daughter who wanted to be there and would have been there with her cohorts if her work schedule would have allowed. And so for each person who was there, we were bringing so many other people with us and I felt that presence and that responsibility. And I would say the final reason is um, when a particular kind of work is coming up and Honor Peace doesn't have any strong history or presence in that work, I sort of regard it as my responsibility to be uh, the tip of the plowshare, which is a right. twisting of the tip of the spear metaphor, is, mm -hmm. is to, to put my body in places where I believe our community wants to be putting our body as a whole. And so that happened you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement when I was able to go down to Beaver Creek, Ohio, and be part of the John Crawford March, a 12-mile hike from... And, and this was another one of those cases where I knew our community just couldn't get ourselves there unless someone went first. And as a leader in honor of peace and the executive in honor of peace, I feel called to do that at different times and places. And this was one of those. Uh, we started following and sharing information about Standing Rock pretty close to the beginning um, once people started to notice what those three women had birthed there when they gathered in prayer and that others would come. And right. what was so compelling about this movement is that it was not only indigenous-led, but it was intergenerationally-led. So the young people and their, uh, their young people's run to Washington, D.C., that was a major backbone and inspiration for the entire Standing Rock community. Uh, that you know, the news stories don't often tell you, but that was a huge piece of what brought people together from dozens of countries and hundreds of tribes. Wow, yeah, I'm sure it was a sight to see. You know, there's a lot of talk right now in the Church of the Brethren about what do we do in terms of creation care. From what I get a sense of, there's more to um, creation care, especially when we look at issues of environmental justice. For them, the creation care aspect has been, has been focused on the water, and that's why right. um, they've named themselves water protectors. I mean, I personally did not go there because of climate activism. I am not a climate activist. Um, I'm not actually uh, a through-and-through through progressive. I don't I didn't go there because it's a pipeline um, and it's a pipeline moving uh, oil. I went there because it's this pipeline moving oil through this community under their water who did not want that to be there. And so I viewed it all along as environmental racism and environmental justice concern. And as I mentioned earlier, in celebrating and supporting um, the Native Americans, rising up and taking their right place alongside of the African Americans uh -huh. in the redemptive justice movement in America. Um, so for me, it is not part of the climate change, anti-carbon or anti-oil movement at all. It's part of something entirely different, but not, in, not incompatible with. I'm not arguing against those. 
I'm just sure. saying that I'm not part of those and I'm not moved by those. So was there particularly something impactful? Did you make a connection with some people? Um, what did you learn from being there physically? I think the most striking thing that you first experience as you move around the camp and look at proceedings and look at instructions and interact with people is the profound commitment to prayer and nonviolence, mm-hmm. um, both prayer and nonviolence. And the, the, the indigenous people who are leading this movement consider it to be part of a 500-year movement of resistance through prayer. Um, mm-hmm. Now, obviously, in the earlier parts of the history, it wasn't through prayer and nonviolence necessarily, but now it is. I mean, they're both held up very deeply. And the depth and breadth of commitment and the kinds of skill and resource that they brought in to imbue that. And this, of course, was in the face of some people present who had differing views, as there always will be. And so the way they managed that tension and still kept forward that clear commitment um, was the most moving thing about it. And then meeting meeting some of the veterans, meeting some of the local um, indigenous people involved with the movement, and how they told me how what this has done for their youth. Uh, the Native Americans have a very high youth suicide rate, um, yeah. way disproportionately high. And this particular um, movement has given them such a sense of pride and purpose and identity and voice that that was noticeable to and through their communities. Um, it was really like a village of villages. There were families and children there. There were cohorts of veterans there all assembled in their groups. There were the faith leaders gathered there. And of course, Standing Rock is not just one camp. It's a cluster of camps. And at the time, there were sort of three main camps. And within the main camp, there was at least one sub-camp within the main camp. So there was there was a Chedi Shakalin, there was um, Sacred Stone, and there was Rosebud. So we were just, you said you're in all three camps or just the main camp? No, um, I I made it a point to go to both Sacred Stone and Machete Shakuin. I didn't go to Rosebud because that had a little bit different story and a less prominent story. But I wanted to really understand what was going on in Standing Rock and all of the the, the tensions and differences that sometimes pop through the surface of the social media, and you can see that it's there. I wanted to go meet the different players in the different camps and get a sense of those um, differences and similarities. And so like I met the chief enforcer of the tribe, which has then yet again a different relationship with the movement because the tribe is the host community uh, but wasn't really the organizing and leading community behind the movement. But the tribe also had to bear all of the burdens in their community of hosting these thousands of people, you know, in in blizzard conditions and driving off the road. So it was a huge, and I stayed at their um, community center, the gymnasium. Um, So it's a big um, act of hospitality and strain on hospitality. And they have a different history with the movement. And then Sacred Stone was the original place where um, the three women gathered in prayer. 
And so as the main Achete Shekoim camp grew in size and in visibility, you know, they, they had very different personalities. And Sacred Stone is, is committed to be there for the long haul. It's on privately owned land, and, you know, they're building some more permanent-like structures. And so that will become an enduring center for learning and activism. And in fact, in the changing circumstances, as Ajedi Shakoin is voluntarily disbanding and removing itself from the floodplain, um, mm-hmm. Sacred Stone becomes almost like the anchor again, when for quite a while it was off to the side of the um, public visibility, let's say. So it sounds like he had several experiences um, learning from the culture and from spirituality. Is there anything from those that that you also brought back in addition, or like would like to say more? I'm not. I'm genuinely not romanticizing or exoticizing when I observe that there's a profound beauty in poetry, and mm-hmm. you can see it coming out of if you follow the the daily, you know, good morning water protectors, good night water protectors posts in social media and the photography and the language, the sparse language that reflects the sparse landscape. Very beautiful and, and powerful. I think I began to gain a greater appreciation of indigenous religion and spirituality by being around it, seeing the depth and breadth of commitment to it, being invited to share in some of the practices, and again, how deeply grounded in prayer that particular faith tradition is or has become. Um, They see the actions that they do as almost incidental expressions of the prayer or additional expressions of the prayer. And of course, the actions they're doing are quite bold and courageous. Right. Can you describe the moment you found out about the Army Corps of Engineers' decision? I think it was that first uh, hold on construction. And where were you, who you were with, and how did that change or empower the mood of the community? That's a really interesting story. And that story and then what happened later that night are almost like a story out of a movie. They couldn't have been more better. They couldn't have been better scripted. So what had happened is that um, we were in the process of gathering into a human prayer chain encircling the camp. And so they were taking the hundreds or probably thousands of people that were there by then, although many more were still making their way there. And we were all joining hands around the whole expanse of a very large camp and the runners would be going around trying to space us out and filling gaps and getting people to connect. And pretty much as the circle was in the final stages of forming, that's when the announcement came out that um, the Army Corps of Engineers had made that decision. So the runners would start going around the circle sharing that particular piece of information. And of course, at the same time, you know, the DAPL planes are flying overhead and I mean, so it was a a mix of stress and peace, if you will. And so they started running around the circle sharing that information, and their response was pretty universal in that it was both a sense of joy and celebration, and then throughout that day, and a very shared sober awareness 
um, of that this was just a temporary tactical change and in fact could be part of a process to our disadvantage. And so it was a both and experience where people were joyously celebrating in the victory and strategically thinking about um, what it might really mean. And of course, you know, that part of it, both parts of it have played out with the uh, new administration and the, uh, the acceleration by the Corps of Engineers and the re now the resumption of, of drilling under the river. And right. so it was an incredible time. And then later that night, uh, hundreds or maybe thousands of more people were still trying to make their way in. And so I was up at the top of the hill at the edge of the camp walking down the road to get back toward the um, uh, reservation community and the community center. And there was just miles of headlights snaking through the road like the scene in Field of Dreams, you know, when they were all coming at the end. That's what it was like that night with more people trying to pour into camp and make their way in. And that was the day before the blizzard came. So that was on that Sunday, December 4. And then Monday, December 5th, everyone was socked in by the beginning of the blizzard. From your experiences, it sounds like, you know, if people are thinking of going out there, um, they should really be prepared for, you know, being with the elements and following the lead of the indigenous people, which leads me to the fourth question I'd like to ask you. What are things that Dunker Punks can do to stand with and follow the lead of the Native American people? Well, right now, while we're recording this, is the time of urgency because mm -hmm. the call has gone out. Again, remember, there are many contingencies that have gathered in the camp, but certainly from... Um, the Sacred Stone Camp and others from Achete Shikoin who shared that view. The call has gone back out. If you can come back to camp, come back to camp. Okay. But if you do come back to camp, you must know that there are genuine and substantial physical and legal risks of being there. And the mm -hmm. physical risks include the weather and the camp conditions, but they also include the possible behaviors of in a state and or federal or private security forces. Um, sure. So both of those are clear calls and clear warnings. There's also clear calls going out for actions all around the country and the globe with very well-described targets of financial institutions who are funding the DAPL project. So if, if you cannot go to camp, you can organize locally, and there are all kinds of uh, toolkits and instructions and, you know, examples and inspirations that you can see and gatherings where you can put your action on the map and see other actions on the map that may be near you. And so that whole type of campaign has resumed with a now or never sense of urgency. Um, right. So that's going on. At the same time, others are in prayerful confidence um, that this campaign will be victorious and they're involved in uh, legal actions in the courts and so forth. It's harder for us to be part of that. We can only join them in prayer for that. And we can also keep sharing the story because Standing Rock, although it's been well known to us, it has suffered from classic media whiteout and was 
only occasionally would bubble up to the surface for a short time. And so as I moved in other social circles, I find a frequent unawareness, complete unawareness of Standing Rock. So if, if you can't get involved in direct action, some of which is friendly, like Valentine's cards to the you know, to the water protectors. There's a whole range of things. If you can't organize locally or go to Standing Rock, um, you can still participate in sharing information and in praying. Right. Would it also still be possible if people felt led to send money as donations or...? For sure. And they tend to try to prioritize the legal fund, the medical fund, um, again, because of such a proliferation of influences and leadership in the larger movement located there. Um, there are several kinds of funds that you can go to, so you have to... I mean, a few months ago, they weren't particularly asking for money, they were asking for things, and they, they had wish lists. You know, they were collecting things for the camp, which... But that was another impressive thing in the earlier segment, the impressive outpouring of generosity that, you know, the, the warehouse is being full sent there, and yet it's all concentrated there when there are now dozens and hundreds of other similar indigenous actions going on. So it's a both end. You can celebrate it and critique it at the same time. So as people send money, financial resource, um, do a little bit of work, dig in, find a place that you prayerfully and studiously have decided this is where you want to put that resource. And the legal fund, by the way, is not for the lawyers. The lawyers and the medical, the legal and medical professionals, they're there as volunteers. They're, they're giving their time and risking themselves. Wow. But the water protectors, some of whom, many of whom are not local, I mean, they get arrested, then they have to keep showing up for you know, court dates at their own expense. They have to have mm-hmm. bail things. And, of course, the, um, the governmental powers that are serving the DAPL interests, they, they're putting through laws that now deeply felonize things that might have been misdemeanors and, and let go in your own release. So when, when the Chetty Chicoine uh, created up on the top of the hill the, little ch- the last child camp, and then the security forces came and essentially burned it down, uh, Chase Iron Eyes was arrested and charged with a felony. Um, so the, the legal costs are much broader than, you know, they're not lawyer fees. They're for, to help people get bail and get back and forth to the trial dates and things like that. I think if we're going to follow the leadership of the leaders there, I have to say prayer is what they most seek. And if you can do any of the other things, they call out for it and welcome it too, from the local organizing all the way to going to Standing Rock now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the veterans are regathering there too. I don't think they'll get the same numbers, and that's why what happened on December 4th was really a tactical feint. You know, it, it basically undercut the, the strength of the movement at its peak moment of power. And so now all the masses have gone, the veterans have gone, winter's set in. So, but prayer, that's what they do. I think that's something that needs to be said and shouted from the rooftops over and over again because uh, as things may get more intense, if the resistance does ratchet up again, um, the stories will be told how the different interests tell those stories. And the interests that 
have the most uh, megaphones to tell those stories are all corporate commercial interests that are, I, I refer to it as the media political complex. So I, I think people need to know that they can trust the commitment to spirituality and prayer and nonviolence as they participate and in, in add themselves into this movement. Right. And I think as radical followers of Jesus, you know, we can certainly do prayer pretty earnestly as well. One would hope, yes. It is a practice that I myself am, you know, have decades trying to learn how to do and come to sure. peace with. Well, and there's also the saying, you know, praying with your feet. Yes. That a lot of other justice movements have incorporated. And to them, that also is prayer. I mean, the, the actions are embodied prayer. That sounds wonderful. So it's great that you were able to go out there and not only experience but participate with what the Sioux tribes and other indigenous tribes are doing to protect the water and their way of life. And since it's Dunker Punks, celebrate the youth, have Dunker Punks, connect with Indigenous Youth Rising, connect with the several other groups that were there, both as group to group and as person to person, uh, individually, because I think that's where Dunker Punks will find its heart and soul in what the young people did, because truly what they did inspired the adults and the elders to follow the lead of the woman and gather there and create this movement. And, and the Dunker Punks could be the same um, in rebuilding support for this next wave of resistance. Well, those are some great words, and I think those are ones that we will leave this rich conversation with. So thank you again, Bill, for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to speak with us at Dunker Punks Podcast. And you know, I wish you the best in the work that you're doing, as well as for all the all the Dunker Punks that are listening, that you continue to, to find what your calling is to follow in the, the way that Jesus calls you to act. So thank you again, Bill. Thank you, Jonathan, and for all the other great things you're doing, too. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'm your host, Nancy Fitzgerald, and I'm so glad to have you part of this growing audience. Jonathan began with a quote from Ezekiel 34. It's not a text we often hear. It says, Must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have fouled with your feet? The water protectors are risking their lives trying to keep water from being fouled. Could you feel the emotion of that temporary victory when President Obama's administration halted the work on the pipeline at Standing Rock? And how does it feel knowing that the current president has put a priority on completing the pipeline in spite of the danger to water sources? These are some highs and lows in just a few short months. But I want to ask you to consider something else you heard Bill Shearer say. Bill went to stand with and for those who are fighting the abuse of nature, those who are fighting to keep water clean and to allow those who depend on it to have a good water resource. Bill responded to a request for faith leaders to live their faith by showing up. 
He went and experienced the community of others who stand up for what they believe. They stand up for what is right and good. They stand up for people and the earth. When Bill went to stand, he represented all of us stunker punks who believe there is a right and wrong. That people are more important than profits and that natural resources are hard to reclaim once they are fouled. I asked you at the beginning to consider what standing on the promises means. For many generations, people have taken those words to mean a personal benefit. The promises they stood on were promises made to them for a good life, a heaven awaiting them, or even using the word salvation. But what if standing on the promises means that we are required to stand up for others when they ask for help? What if we are to stand with the oppressed, the threatened, to stand in front of bulldozers because we have promised to be one with God's people whose lives are threatened? We can stand on the promises that we have made, Dunker Punks, when we stood and promised to follow the Jesus way. That promise changes everything for us. And our promise to stand with Jesus means we need to stand up for the earth and for its people. Our promise can also mean we must stand against corporations who would abuse water, take resources, and steal from people. No, not just people, but from nations, the indigenous nations of America, who have been promised land and water resources and seen those taken away and promises broken again and again. Today I ask one more question of you. What do you stand for? If your answer is the Jesus way, then you might ask yourself, what would Jesus have you do when water, land, and lives are threatened? Our times are calling on us to stand on the promises we have made, as much as we cling to the promises Christ made. So, Dunker Punks, how do you live the promise? Bill asks us to pray first, to share the information that is no longer headline news, to make sure the people standing at Standing Rock are not forgotten now that the story has faded. Will you do those two things? And if you commit to pray and to tell others, you will need to search the internet to find updated stories on what is happening. If you don't let others forget, you too will be a water protector who stands on the promise of Christ. pray with me. God of all people and all the earth, we pray for the water protectors who risk their lives and put all aside to stand in place. They stand for your earth and for your people, God. Help them. Turn minds and hearts around. Let justice roll down like water, fresh, clean water, for the people of the Sioux Nation and for all people who face broken promises. Help us, too, to be strong in our promise to follow the way of Jesus and to stand in solidarity and witness with others. Amen. Go and stand in peace and work for justice, Dunker Punks. Until the next episode, when we will hear from Dylan DeHaro and his third episode on gender. 
The Dunker Punks podcast is brought to you by the Arlington Church of the Brethren, and episodes may be found at arlingtoncob.org slash dpp, or with your favorite podcast app. A dozen young adults provide content each episode designed to encourage and challenge those who choose to follow Jesus by standing on his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Jacob Krause performed music and edited the audio this week. Suzanne Lay is the producer of the show. The Dunker Punks podcast team is growing. Contact us if you are interested in joining the team or sponsoring an episode. You can find us at Dunker Punks Pod on most social media. Blessings to all you listeners, and thanks again for being part of this cyber audience. Mm-hmm.